it's an interesting spin on a criminal world that they actually are pioneers That's and we should be forever grateful to them. <laughs> yeah, as long as they're not hurting anybody, <laughs> I guess. Well, uh, there, there, there would be some collateral damage along the way of the progress, so I just, we can't exclude that. Mm. But at the end of the day, for greater good, they probably justifying it. <laughs> interesting. Never thought that we will end up there. Thank you to criminal world. Welcome to the Unfair Advantage Project. Unique perspectives, practical insights, and unexpected discoveries directly focused on giving you the unfair advantage. Introducing your hosts, Nadia Hughes and Terrence Toe. Welcome to the Unfair Advantage Project. I am Terrence Toe, Managing Director and Founder of Strategic Corporation. I'll be one of your hosts today, joined by Nadia. Morning, Nadia. Good morning, Terence. I'm Nadia Hughes from Smart Business Solutions, and I'm very happy to be here today. Great. And today, we're really excited to be joined by Jamie Skeller. He's the co-founder of Horizon State and also devised the world's first blockchain voting system. And today, we're going to have a little bit of a discussion about blockchain, cryptocurrencies, and some of that stuff. So welcome, Jamie. Hello, mate. Thanks for having me. You are very welcome. And the reason why you're here, it's your presentation on Ziracon. I was recently going to the conference where all accountants hang out and it's apparently known now schoolies for accountants. It was a big bash. So when your presentation came, I actually was thinking, well, it's a time when I can check my emails and do a few things. I'm sorry, that's the truth of it. And suddenly over my ears pricked and I'm just going, oh, wow, this guy knows his stuff. So I kind of treated you straight away like a genius. The reason why I treated you as a genius because you explain a very complicated concept in a very simple terms and I could see relief on faces of other accountants as well as I couldn't see my own face, but I'm pretty sure it was relieved as well. Explaining this, what we are struggling to explain to our clients in simple words, it's blockchain. What is it about? Because we have to explain them also the effects of it when they trade out there, what, how they have to treat it for tax purpose and how, where they have to recognize revenue or it's an asset. So it's, there is a lot of things going in accounting world, but I won't bore you with it. What I do want to ask you is about unblock the blockchain. Look, it was a great conference. Um... Pretty, pretty spectacular production. I think it's one of the biggest ones that I've spoken at. There was about 3,500 people in the audience, I think, and there was this big center radial stage with seats all around. So it was a bit of a, bit of a rock star moment, which was just bizarre considering that I was talking to a room full of accountants. Hey, we are cool. <laughs> so, yeah, look, I mean, the, the, premise, the premise for the talk in terms of unblocking the blockchain, I didn't choose the name for the talk, by the way, but but that's in effect what the what the context of the content was, and so it was really talking about at a high level this new asset class, starting with Bitcoin and, and talking about what it represents philosophically, but also how it works technologically, and then the implications for this technology across various industries, and a quick explanation as well of I think how to explain it simply, as you say, it it's early days for the technology, it's overwhelming for a lot of people. I mean, it's it's a really really deep subject, and I've been trying to explain it simply for you know the last 18 months since I uh, dipped my toe into this space professionally. So the reception was great. It went really well. I think there was a really huge amount of positive feedback. Mm-hmm. Great. 
So can you just explain for our listeners in a very simple terms, what is blockchain? Yeah, well, I mean, look, in, I'll try and run through the presentation, let's call it, in a two or three minute block and we'll see how we go. But basically, it all sort of started in terms of the world's first uh, publicly used, understood, propagated blockchain was, was Bitcoin with a capital B. So we, we typically uppercase the B for the network and we lowercase the B for the currency because these are two separate things. The network itself is, is a blockchain, the Bitcoin blockchain. And then we have its native asset atop of that, which is Bitcoin with a lowercase B. And this is a big deal because it solves the Byzantine general's problem, aka the double spend problem. And this is obviously something that, that probably uh, resonated with the accounting audience because what it means is that finally we're able to create a digital asset with true ownership and rest assured that when it's transferred, it really is transferred. That a fraction of a Bitcoin has gone from me to you, Nadia, and that now you are the actual owner of that little slice of a Bitcoin. Now, this sounds completely intuitive to most people these days. It sounds like it should be possible, of course. But the reality is up until recently, 2009, it, it just wasn't. If we imagine for a moment that an mp3 a music file was legal tender that the federal government said we could spend that in stores then the, the, the reality is that merchants wouldn't really know whose copy of alanis morissette jacob little pill is authentic and which isn't because of course i can copy that a million times and i can send it via email while maintaining a copy or i can send it via email while maintaining a copy and so bitcoin changes that bitcoin's blockchain changes that so that's in a nutshell the technology, but of course the implications for this are pretty far-reaching. In terms of economic benefit, we have this new asset being used not only as a medium of exchange, but as a store of value and a unit of account. It means that international remittances are spectacularly low, which means that Africa can start to be brought into the modern economy instead of being taken for a ride. There are benefits to the technology from a from a technical perspective, which have economic implications as well, such as, you know, for example, 18 decimal places. So forget about microtransactions and start thinking about nanotransactions. We can start trading jewels instead of kilowatt hours. Some, some really incredible stuff can start to happen when you have a unit which can be divided down so far, transmitted virtually instantly, settled virtually instantly, and, and done so incredibly cheaply. And so some of the real-world examples I gave for this at the conference to help people open their minds to the possibilities, one is a sort of a brand-new Spotify competitor where instead of having a middleman such as Spotify taking, you know, 12 of our $13 and the cents go to artists, we have a much more direct relationship where a foundation maintains the interface and instead they're getting the fractions of that subscription and the rest is more of a direct relationship between us and the artists that have such a great impact on our lives. We can think about peer-to-peer -peer energy trade over in Perth, Power Ledger's doing some great stuff on microgrids where Joe and Sue can automatically and autonomously trade energy between one another rather than needing to buy energy from the big boys such as Origin or Energy Australia who have, again, massive overheads. Only about 20 or 30% of your power bill is actually power. And so if you can strip out most of those overheads and create local economies, the opportunity for people to trade energy autonomously reliably and in a trustworthy fashion using this technology, then that's a huge sort of paradigm shift in uh, our economic behavior and, and the way that society organizes itself. And then the final example is the sort of stuff I've been working on, which is a little bit more abstract, but it's about retrofitting a blockchain transaction 
to instead of be financial, purely financial in nature, that transaction represents something else, such as a vote. And the reason this is possible, and the reason this is really quite profound, is that not only does this technology enable, for example, 18 decimal places and instant settlements and low fees, but these transactions are also immutable and they're irreversible and they're post-unforgeable. They're perfectly accountable. They're perfectly transparent. As you can imagine, these are also all terrific properties for a vote or a voting system. It effectively means that we can create a vote using this technology, a digital vote, which is tamper-proof. It's unhackable. It can't be changed after the fact, which means using this technology, we can work to an eradication of corruption. You're telling me that, that Trump would never be elected. Well, look, we can't change election <laughs> results, but, but using this technology, what we can do is... Well, is Russians were blamed for tempering, so I'm just wondering. So I think it was probably more to do with social engineering than actual ballot tempering. But there are certainly examples of ballot tempering, outright explicit ballot tampering in many places around the world, mostly developing nations, where this technology would rule that kind of behavior out. So it adds a, a massive uh, layer of legitimacy to that kind of practice. Mm-hmm. And look, I think probably a, a couple other really nice examples. Again, they're more abstract ones. They're less economy and finance. Uh, these are social good examples, but blockchain's also seeing great adoption in supply chain right now, which effectively means being able to log something at the point of departure or point of manufacture and have it immutably traceable and logged throughout the entire supply chain to the point of delivery or destination. And this means that the recipient has perfect proof of its origins without any question that somebody's tried to change or tamper with that to, for example, deliver fake pharmaceuticals and kill people or deliver fake diamonds, blood diamonds or conflict diamonds. And so all of a sudden we can start thinking about how do we improve humanitarian practices and improving the quality of, for example, those involved in the mining of diamonds, fingerprinting it inside a mine with you know, 40 clear metrics which are effectively unique and then being able to log that to a blockchain and, and ship it off and have the end user know that this diamond came from this mine and be able to then go off and research the practices and, and track record of those involved in the mining. And then also things like food stamps, Jordanian refugee camps where Syrian refugees are, are biometrically fingerprinted at the point of entry using retina scanning. And then uh, they have food stamps, food tickets assigned to their identity. This means that the food stamps can't be forged, they can't be counterfeit, and most importantly, they can't be stolen. So there's, there's a reduction in violence, and it means that whenever they walk into a store within the camp, their retina is scanned and it's deducted from their balance using blockchain technology. That particular pilot was using uh, the Ethereum public blockchain back in last October, I believe. So lots and lots of great stuff. You know, it's an emerging technology, but it's being used for lots of tremendous stuff right now as well. And the government's obviously expressing a bigger um, interest in uh, developing these technologies because they effectively introduce this level of transparency. But it's also introducing level of accountability, exactly. which possibly can be not uh, such a good idea for a lot of people who is now benefiting from tempering or some sidekicks from not being so accountable. It's being a woman, I just like thinking, oh, that's the end of the Prada bags. Uh, <laughs> and that, that's you mean when, the counterfeit ones? Yes, that's it. <laughs> you, you can't just well, pretend right. that you've got a, you, you own a Prada bag anymore. That's right. So, I mean, they're both great points. And look, I mean, if somebody's passing you in the street or you're at the cafe with a friend, they're probably not going to ask to see the blockchain supply chain record for your Prada bag. But it's absolutely right. I mean, uh, retailers 
they'll be held accountable and, and consumers will be able to verify the authenticity of these items. And look, yes, the accountability in regards to politicians, some of them might not like it so much. We've already had interesting conversations. And look, full disclosure, I no longer work for Horizon State, the company that I devised uh, the building of this technology with. But tremendous ride and, and they're having incredible conversations all around the world. But yes, there is resistance from some politicians in some regions, while others are very excited and wanting to embrace it wholeheartedly. And how far do you think this technology of being fully embraced and taking basically widespread in our lives? We're a ways off. You know, as we had a quick chat about offline, a big issue with this stuff right now is really the quality of user experience to use blockchain-based tech. Now, the voting tech we developed was designed to be very much a Web 2.0 experience. So despite the fact that there was very clever things going on behind the scenes, really the experience for a user is, was just a modern web experience, which we think is really, really important because too often a lot of this tech is very unintuitive. It's very complex. It reminds me of being an end user you know, in the early 90s, messing around with the internet and BBS and later the web. And while, you know, as a curious teenager, it wasn't too hard to get my head around. That unfortunately just was more or less impossible for anybody who didn't fit that sort of personality definition. So we need the experiences to get a lot better for mass adoption. Right now, I sort of feel like we've reached saturation in terms of the people already using blockchain technologies, blockchain products and services, cryptocurrency. I feel like we're pretty saturated because it really is a struggle for most people to figure out how to get involved, how to use it. To begin with, Jim, it's a struggle for a lot of people to understand what it means. And in a tri again, trivializing the example, it's probably the husband sitting there trading cryptocurrency and his wife wondering where all the money goes. And then suddenly all the bank balance is empty and the house has to be there for sale. So she... That's again very trivial example, but it's related to real case. Then wonder is what the hell is cryptocurrency? How does it work and how we end up selling our house? Can you explain in a very, very lame terms what cryptocurrency is for this suffering wife? Ultimately, uh, well, philosophically at least, cryptocurrency represents a way to uh, separate money and state. You know, we talk about the concept of, of separating church and state. Many people would argue that separating money and state also isn't such a bad idea. Others believe that it would probably be Armageddon. But that's effectively what it sets out to achieve, is to maintain some independence and some self-sovereign asset and financial ownership over our net worth and over our trade. And so this, the way this works is effectively by creating a technology that can remove middlemen from these exchanges. And so banks is really what I'm talking about primarily. The ability for you and I to exchange something of value, a digital asset, and do so without it needing to go through a middleman who, who more or less serves as an IOU, and an identity verifier. So they say, look, Jamie's good for it. Nadia, here's the cash. In actual fact, that settlement doesn't take place for, for hours, days, sometimes weeks. But there's this system of IOUs and guarantees along the way. And this technology more or less replaces that, that IOU and guarantee system. It makes it possible for me to send you something digital and you receive it and us rest assured that that transaction can be trusted. Now, the example I gave at ZeroCon about how that's possible uh, is probably worthwhile making here too, which is that if we want to talk about this in terms of 
an analogy which might be easy to understand. Let's pretend for a moment that you and I have decided that we want to exchange $5 worth of value. It doesn't have to be five Australian dollars, but it's $5 worth of value and we don't want to use an intermediary, a bank. So we gather up 200 of our closest friends and associates and we get them to come over to our place with a record book and a pen. So everybody's there and they see this transaction, they witness this transaction take place. They record all of the details about it. So the location, who it was from, who it was to, the timestamp, they verify that the signatures were correct, all these sorts of details. And this is a, a shared reality. Everybody has seen the same thing and recorded the same details. And in blockchain terms, what we have reached now is consensus amongst the network. And so they all go back home. Some of them live around the corner. Some of them live across the road and around the street, uh, the next suburb, interstate, overseas. Um, now, you as a bad actor, if you wanted to go and try and change this record, $5 of value to be $50 of value, you really sort of just need to add an extra zero. But because this database, this record book is novel in nature, it's underpinned by some an interesting combination of a distributed system and, and cryptographic ideas, as well as some concepts such as proof of work, you would conceptually at least, and this is technically an imperfect example, but it's, it's a good entry point. Conceptually, you would need to break into every single one of those person's homes and change that line item simultaneously without waking any of them up. And so, you know, in, in practical terms, this is currently an impossible feat, but with my computer scientist hat on, it's still highly improbable. So that's fundamentally um, how the technology works. And there are lots of great knock-on effects um, because of how it works for society and people's health and well-being, in fact. If we think about the advantage of not using a bank in Australia, well, advantages are probably pretty minimal because we live in a relatively stable economy with a relatively stable democracy. We're doing okay. However, if you're in Africa or if you're in Cyprus, if you're in Argentina, then the opportunity to protect your own net worth, to protect your assets, to distance yourself from the nation state when it comes to trade and commerce, this can be a, a huge leg up because historically what we've seen over and over again is that currencies reach a point of hyperinflation and then they reach hyperdeflation in terms of value. We see banks freezing funds based on orders from governments. We see banks um, taking money from customers, a clip of the ticket or entire amounts. We see people's finances being frozen um, unlawfully. And these happens in moments of crisis. So cryptocurrency, it's almost a bet against the state. And it really is about taking control back of your own assets. I wish I, we had this technology back then in 90s when I was in Russia and suddenly over all our savings overnight turned into nothing. It's turned into dust. Life savings of my grandma, she just basically gave it to me on my wedding and she in, in a very sad sort of way because back then it was something and suddenly when its time came in 90s, it was worthless. So it was a lot of sadness. It's meant a lot to me because it was her life savings, mm -hmm. but in monetary sense, it's, it was worthless. It's not an uncommon story throughout the last sort of 70, 80 years. We've seen this happen countless times in many, many places, which is really unfortunate. And now look, I'm not advocating that everybody move entirely to cryptocurrency. I don't think that's wise. But I think it would also be unwise to not have some cryptocurrency wherever you live, because even in Australia, you know, these things are cyclical. We aren't going to have a strong, stable economy forever. So outside of a speculative investment, it's also good for people still to get their head around this technology, get their head around the value of the asset class, why it's important. 
because this is the future. I mean, it's, it's here to stay. Uh, and while we will still be dealing in our local currencies for a long time to come and the banks aren't disappearing overnight, this is going to play an increasing and ever increasing important part in, in our lives. And what do you think is a major danger suddenly where people go all on cryptocurrency? Well, it's just the volatility, right? I mean, we are seeing some really great work being done to introduce what are called stable coins, which maintain the same major benefits of cryptocurrency, which is that it's immutable and it's censorship resistant and the banks can't take it and the government can't take it. And it has 18 decimal places or less or more, depending on the architecture for nanotransactions. And it settles instantly and it can be sent across borders in moments, all these sorts of incredible things. But it maintains a stable price, uh, which is really, really important because right now, even the most stable cryptocurrencies, which is probably Bitcoin, because it's the most mature with the largest market cap and the largest number of network participants, it's still highly volatile. I mean, it still has 25% swings some days. And then over the course of 10 months, as we've seen, it can lose you know, 80% of its value. So the big risk here is that by going all in on cryptocurrency that you, you potentially reduce your net worth by 80%, which nobody really wants. I mean, that's, that's life for some people. I think for me personally, having a relatively large risk appetite, I think me having 15% or even 20% of my net worth in crypto makes sense for me. A lot of people, I don't necessarily think that it's wise to play with a more than more than a few percent of your net worth, certainly if that savings is meant to be going towards things such as a, a house deposit, especially given the, the housing market in Australia right now, that's probably not wise given the volatility of crypto. Hmm. So I guess it's kind of changed the way I was thinking of crypto as just the you know decentralized currency. And I was really, you know, and blockchain just thinking about it as being currency. I've kind of changed that now based on this conversation to decentralizing the control of transactions. Mm-hmm. Is that kind of, am I on the right yeah. track? It's so much bigger than, than finance, currency, economics. I mean, obviously the killer app, the first killer app and the most obvious application for this technology is indeed economic in nature. It's about digital assets, being able to transfer them as a medium of exchange, a forms of payment, um, a store of value. It's pretty profound unto itself, especially if you think about the fact that Right now, cash in Australia is dying. I mean, already about 70% of transactions that take place in this country are digital. But what that means is that 70% of transactions are going through banks and intermediaries, which ultimately means that those transactions are surveillable. Now, that's not to say some strange authoritarian rule is going to uh, come into play and uh, these are going to be outwardly exploited. But the bottom line is we are sort of heading towards an Orwellian future here where the flow of money is completely overseen and controlled by large intermediary institutions and governments. And so the financial benefit here of cryptocurrency is that we sort of have created a digital cash where you and I can trade peer-to-peer outside that reality, which I think is an important point to make. So finance is big, but that's not everything. If we think about the examples I gave before for voting or supply chain, or humanitarian aid, these transactions, because of, I guess, the technical details about what they can achieve, makes it a much bigger and broader proposition than mere finance. And yes, it has the opportunity to remove middlemen in many ways, shapes and forms. The Spotify example I gave, really, in the future, give it five, 10 years, maybe more, there'll be the opportunity to unseat some of these 
large capitalist for-profit institutions that sit in the middle of us and artists. The power ledger example, the ability to remove large capital accruing institutions making crazy profits. We'll be able to move them out of the way of that relationship we have with energy sort of creators, miners, suppliers, you know, throwing some solar panels up on the roof means that you are effectively now well, one piece of origin energy for your uh, local neighborhood without the need for those big intermediary organizations. So, you know, these realities are still a fair way off, of course. This isn't going to be an overnight change, but this change is now possible and it is happening already. Because they will attract the huge rebalancing of wells, it's going to be a lot of opposition to those transactions, of course. As you can see, the moment we are decentralized anything, it just means only few selected individuals going to lose a lot of powers. Unfortunately, these very few selected individuals uh, accumulated the most of wealth and money talks, as you know. Therefore, this is one of the biggest, probably, predicaments in making this available. Second thing you said, it's going to be user experience. And this one, I would like you to unpack from the point of view of any business owner experience, because we all offer out there something we think of value. We think ourselves as great specialists. We think of ourselves that we created some product which the world needs. And you can see the cryptocurrency is exactly this product the world needs it. But you said that because of poor user experience, because of users are not educated about it as well. So we have an issue of understanding the market is not really savvy what it represents and how they can use it. It's a very common to the any business owner, this problem, user experience. That's what I'm asking you to unpack a bit more. Yeah. Firstly, you made a point just earlier, which was about sort of the equalization of, of, I guess, wealth accrual, which is philosophically a really important point to make as well. It's something that really underpins a lot of the original movement, which is that, well, there will always be income equality. And for example, there'll be people that have way more Bitcoin than other people. It's about shifting these power and capital vacuums away from centralized institutions. And what this technology enables by removing those intermediaries or diminishing the role of intermediaries is a much more equitable flow of capital throughout our economy. So it's more evenly dispersed amongst the people rather than it all of a sudden starting to build up and amass with large businesses, basically. So it's a nice thing to think about. On the topic of user experience, yeah. I mean, I spent 20 years in UX design, kind of. I mean, I, I started out as a web designer building and developing websites as a 13, 14-year-old and, and going on to start my first business out of that. And it became very obvious very fast that some of what I was doing was really effective. And that's what led me down um, a path of diving into um, behavioral psychology and starting to think more deeply about why my interface is received well or why it's effective for the business and why it isn't. And so I'd gone on to work as the um, user experience director for TATS Group, which is Tattersall's Lotteries in Victoria, as well as head of UX at the AFL. I really have felt ever since I dived into technology as a tween that design sort of underpinned a way of thinking which was going to have an effect on everything I did, had far broader effects than what most people recognize. To be a designer is ultimately to be a problem solver. So you can be a fashion designer or you can be a web designer. But this designer mindset, it's really, really important. And it's really, really important if you want to be successful in, in 
whatever it is you're doing. And I really believe that my time working through these problems and thinking about how humans use technology, how they resonate, the, the design of that technology, both from how it works and how it looks perspective, has been a really, really significant part of the success I've seen already working with blockchain technology. And it's something we need to see a lot more blockchain startup embrace, I think, with a lot more vigor, because it seems to be ignored a lot at the moment. Yes. And what your ultimate advice would be for business owners out there, because they are having great ideas, they are having great products, but how would they improve user experience? Well, it's important to say that user experience is a silver bullet. It's important. It's really important. But ultimately, I mean, user experience conceptually is kind of everyone's job. I mean, if that kind of thinking and that kind of design culture doesn't permeate through the entire operation, customer support, marketing, obviously decision makers and the executive, then a design team unto themselves is going to be pretty ineffective. So it's really, I guess, trying to think holistically about your company and about the experience that your customers have, trying to make sure that the entire organization is receptive and understanding to the importance of this way of thinking. And it's easily uh, demonstrable as well. All you have to do is look at some longitudinal investment strategies that have been undertaken with various funds, focusing specifically on organizations that value design and user experience and customer experience above most others. People that, organizations that seat designers, you know, at the big table, that really think about it strategically, that place a lot of value on it, that make sure that design leadership is in as important as economic leadership and commercial leadership. These kinds of organizations are Nike, they're Apple, of course. And what you see that when you invest in these kinds of companies, this definition of what makes a good company, understanding where their focuses lie and seeing that one of them is absolutely on design, they outperform you know, the portfolio of these companies outperforms the rest of the market by an excess of 200%. And we see this all around the world. We see it in London and we see it in the United States as well. Just a simple, to me, I think about it, I've done a lot of modeling for my business and actually helped other people some work on their businesses, obviously in my role anyway. And is it just as simple as placing the user at the center of what you're doing instead of trying to design this product and hope that, you know, you can get someone to buy it uh, put the user in the center of it first. It is. Uh, so you might have heard of the term user, user-centered thinking or user-centered design, which is really about making sure that we try and remain objective. Once upon a time, I may have been designing interfaces with an aesthetic that I liked and colors that I like. Of course, that's an incredibly terrible way to go about it. And this is becoming more and more commonly understood that even as as a designer, to be a great designer and to be really proud of your work. It's sometimes it's designing things that you don't necessarily like personally, but that's okay because any good business will be able to identify a specific target market, a demographic of customers or end users that they need to be successful. So for example, if we're designing technology for the elderly, then a flat UI aesthetic might be so good for them because it's just not as clear. I mean, literally, it's not as clear. It's not as effective than skeuomorphic, which is making elements look like they're something out of the real world. Even for audience, this still remains the case a lot of the time, although digital natives, you know, uh, they, they're able to take on flat UI much more intuitively than the older ones. But these are the sorts of these considerations that, that need to be undertaken. And that's obviously uh, just one example in relation to digital UI, but that really permeates through the entire decision-making process for any kind of product design or business design. It's about 
you know, industrial design in terms of engineering and ergonomics for devices that are held uh, in terms of the business and its market position and marketing. Again, there are best practices, but best practices won't always apply to what you're doing if you have a very specific niche that you need to target. And it's about understanding that user base, that niche base that you are going to require to be successful. Hmm. You mentioned earlier that you think we've reached saturation at this point with digital currency, but you know I think that also the UX has a lot to do with that, right? We have for the moment primarily because of user experience in that it, it, it's too hard, too complex, it's too unintuitive. I mean, the definition of, of intuitive in practical terms really comes down to the fact that it's something that at least in some way is familiar. That's what makes something intuitive. It's like, well, this is very quick for me to understand or use or learn. And the reason for this is that there's been something previously in our lives which has shared some resemblance or some relationship. And so it seems intuitive, but really it's because it borrows on certain interaction patterns or certain ideas or certain ways of working which we've done before uh, in some way, shape or form. And cryptocurrency really isn't that for most people. It's completely foreign. And so we need to get those experiences a lot better before we see truly mass adoption of the technology because right now it's, uh, yeah, it's for the curious. It's for the risk takers. It's for people that are tech savvy. Um, we do see lots of other people, of course, getting into it as well. But, you know, we've got a ways to go. I don't think until the experience is as good, if not better, than the ones that people are currently having with their banks or with Spotify, as examples, will people use this new kind of currency or will people use this next generation Spotify? They just won't do it if it's, if it's uh, harder to use. It's, that's the first hurdle. Mm. Okay. And so just going back to the, you know, to the cryptocurrency side of things, I guess back away from the UX a little bit. You mentioned before, you know, we're talking about crisis. You know, we've, we've had the GFCs. It's in still very recent memory. I guess lots of factors that, came into something like that and we're only you know a matter of years i guess from another crisis of some sort what role you know is cryptocurrency going to help us to prevent a crisis or make it different in any way well the idea i think is that it's going to help people protect themselves from those sorts of events so to safeguard part of their net wealth from those kinds of events the idea is that in a time of economic downturn or turmoil, that the value of crypto assets will in fact rise or at least become more valuable against those local economic units such as the Australian dollar. So if we think about, well, there's a slight chance that Australia might be in for a bit of a bumpy road over the next two or three years. There are right now rumours circulating about policies that a shortened government might impose if they get to power, which they might because the Liberal government is currently just completely in shambles. Things surrounding negative gearing and interest rates. In a worst case doomsday scenario, as reported on the news in a, a very frightening fashion, is that this could mean the housing market collapses by up to 40%. I think that's unrealistic, but let's call it 15 or 20, which might still be unrealistic. But for the housing market to drop by those significant percentages also means that the the country probably falls into a pretty deep recession. Not as bad as what we saw with the US, but it would be pretty bad. And then all of a sudden, that affects everything. It affects jobs. It affects the value of our money versus other money around the world. It affects the price of goods and services in this country against a compromised dollar. And so by having 
Bitcoin or Ethereum or some portfolio of crypto assets it means that you have something which is decoupled from that crushed economy from that recession. So it's not going to make any country recession proof, not yet, but it will certainly put people in a position to maintain control of a greater portion of their assets at that point in time more volatile than the current crypto markets. So I guess, again, it's, it's about balance. It's about rational consideration. It's about thinking carefully about how much you put at risk into these new experimental cutting edge technologies and, and currencies. But absolutely, it's an offset. It's really some protection against those kinds of eventuations and they will happen. Absolutely. And we have to, you're quite right, we have to be very careful. We are not giving here advice to invest in cryptocurrency by any means. We're just here to explain what cryptocurrency stands for. But also prevent those horrific examples occurring again and again when people actually sold their homes and purchased cryptocurrency and experienced a huge loss. And basically this something which made a lot of financial planners scratch their heads because they couldn't stop this hysteria of people buying this Bitcoin mm. when it was hiking. So that's yeah. basically I want to mention. Cool. The next question for me is really about the future. I mean, what other future implications do you think of these new technologies and the decentralization that we're seeing? There's a whole whole raft of emerging technologies which are going to have compounding effects in regards to how individuals interact with government and what government's role is in our day-to-day lives, economic or otherwise. And I'll give you a couple examples. One is obviously cryptocurrency in the sense that while you as an individual are still completely obligated to be transparent and pay your taxes according to the local law, it does in reality provide opportunities for people to abstract themselves from local economies. There are people already experimenting by being entirely in crypto, both in the United States and in Australia, and more or less divorcing themselves from that country's regulation from their tax. And so while they'll remain residents, they might not be citizens for taxation purposes. And instead, they'll be in a tax haven, more or less living off of uh, cryptocurrency and converting that in and out using various services to spend it day to day uh, in supermarkets and online. So interesting things there for the government to think about, partly, I guess, in respect to Not necessarily how do we prevent it, but I guess coming to terms with this reality and thinking how they best manage it, because it's not going to be something that they can stop if people want to do this. Of course, laws can be imposed and regulations can be applied, but you're talking about technology which kind of can't be shut down, it can't really be restricted unless you want to create a, a national firewall like China, which really doesn't deter anybody that's truly motivated to do these kinds of things anyway. Another example is autonomous vehicles. Again, implications for government is that if you have vehicles that never speed and that never drink drive and that never run red lights, then you have reduction in opportunity for revenue generation through those kinds of fines. And so the sort of picture that I'm trying to paint here is that within the next 30 years, based on a combination of technologies, autonomous vehicles uh, and other AI, uh, cryptocurrency, we're going to see the government maybe not become I don't think we're going to get to a point where we do separate money from state, especially not within that window of time, but where the relationship between money and state will change pretty significantly during that time. And the wealth of the government will change pretty significantly during that time. And so, look, it's really hard to predict the future. 
As a futurist, I suppose I try not to think about absolutes because that's generally just hyperbole and instead think about the potential futures, the three or four or five places that we might end up. And there are certainly some pretty dystopian outlooks and there are some pretty utopian outlooks, but the bottom line is that things will continue to change. They always do, they always have and they always will. So for me, it's always thinking about instead of seeing change as threat, instead of seeing change as uh, something that's scary, I always try and appreciate that everything will always continue to change and try and capitalize on that. See change as opportunity. Is it true, Jeremy, that cryptocurrency was invented by black market? initially? Look, it wasn't invented by the black market, but in typical fashion, criminals always the first to take advantage of any new interesting technology. And when it comes to the commercial... They're very advanced. Yeah, they are, absolutely. Well, they have to remain on the cutting edge. They have to try and remain ahead of norms, ahead of traditions. And so when you offer them a technology which can be anonymous or pseudo-anonymous, that can enable them to transfer across borders instantly with low fees outside of the control or visibility of banks. This is obviously a very attractive proposition to criminal activity. But the bottom line is that most crime is still conducted with cash. I mean, people say that you, you know, maybe cryptocurrency shouldn't exist because it's used for criminal activity. Well, cash is used for a lot more criminal activity. We see this with a lot of technologies. There's, there's two trends. One is the adoption for criminal activity, and the other is the adoption by the, the porn industry. You know, once the porn industry has adopted some technology, that it's going to be the winner. And so if you think about beta versus VHS, if you think about DVD versus Blu-ray, if you think about the early days of the internet, again, the internet was adopted initially for porn and crime, and of course has now gone on to shape the world in incredibly positive and profound ways. And we see that with every major technology is that initially it seems a little bit dubious, but over time, if the technology is worth its weight, then it always turns itself around and we end up seeing its greater use case being positive things rather than things might be perceived as negative. It's an interesting spin on a criminal world that they actually are pioneers That's and we should be forever grateful to them. <laughs> yeah, as long as they're not hurting anybody, uh, I guess. Well, uh, there, there would be some collateral damage along the way of the progress, so I just we can't exclude that. Mm. But at the end of the day, for greater good, now they probably justifying it. <laughs> interesting. Never thought we will end up there. Mm. Saying thank you to criminal world. Mm. So, Jamie... What would be your advice for someone who's listening to this and thinks, I mean, you know, I don't know much about crypto, but this sounds exciting. You know, the future uses for this technology are really exciting and it definitely seems like there's going to be a big future for it. So, you know, for, for someone who's very new to this, what advice could you give them on, you know? First, if this conversation has interested you, I'd urge you to go and do some Googling for the terms blockchain for social impact, blockchain for good, these kinds of search terms. You'll be fascinated to learn about how powerful this technology can be in leveling the playing field, in reducing harm, in improving the quality of life for people all around the world. So, uh, you know, blockchain is not the answer to everything, but it really is part of the answer for some pretty big problems we have, and that's exciting. In terms of cryptocurrency specifically, You need to play around with it. You, you simply have to, advocating any significant investment. I think it would be completely unwise to risk more than a few percent of your net worth if you wanted to double 
and actually invest and or hold any kind of crypto asset. But even just to go and buy five bucks or 10 bucks or 20 bucks worth and get an idea of how it works, I think is, is very, very valuable knowledge. So jump on to BTC Markets or jump on to Independent Reserve. These are a couple Australian exchanges. You can also check out Coinbase, which has a great user experience compared to most other places to purchase cryptocurrency. And yeah, go on there, have a tinker, get your head around it. Try your best to get your head around it because whether it's something that you use day to day now or not, it probably will be five or 10 years from now. So it's good knowledge to have. So don't be scared to get out. It's daunting at first. It scared the hell out of me when I first got into it. Even as a technologist working with high tech for a long time now, it was still a big leap to make. There's a lot to understand, but it's thoroughly rewarding. And how do our listeners know that which platform is credible and which one they can potentially be scammed? Well, I think any exchange that has been formally recognized by a regulatory body, which is many Australian exchanges now, I do believe BTC Markets, Independent Reserve, and a new exchange firing up called Blockbid, and I've met the founders um, of a couple of those. They're reputable institutions. Um, it's still without risk. I don't know what sort of insurances they have against loss ultimately. So the rule of thumb is always that if you buy a cryptocurrency on an exchange, don't leave it there. It's not good practice. So if you buy 50 bucks worth of Ethereum or Bitcoin, you can set up your own wallet to make it truly self-sovereign, which is the, the purpose of this technology. And so while you're buying your cryptocurrency from an institution which has a whole bunch of it, because you might not have any friends you can buy any off directly, once you've purchased that, don't just leave it on those websites, on those exchanges. You'll want to create your own wallet, which is managed by you, which also introduces an extra and additional kind of risk because the cryptographic keys which provide access to these funds will be totally in your control. It's what's scary, but it's also what's empowering is that you have this private key. If that's ever lost or stolen, then your money's gone and there's no repercussion. There's no 1-800 hotline to call. There's, there's no, I mean, it's literally self-sovereign ownership. So you need to think about how you uh, secure your own data and where you store that key in how so it's bravely well oh interesting anything exciting happening in this uh, i know it's saturated you said already in the sense of what has been invented or anything but something like really truly the most recent exciting developments out there the most exciting ideas for blockchain are ones that haven't be, even been thought of yet. As I alluded to much earlier, you know, this is kind of like the internet of 1992-1994. We all saw the promise, the idea that you could digitize documents and communicate electronically, sending messages across long distances, low latency and short amounts of time. That was a huge promise. But Uber and Airbnb and, and Facebook, the, the implications and the arrival of those were completely unforeseen. And the knock-on effects they've had for society are completely unforeseen. Yeah, 10 or 15 years ago, if you were to hop into a stranger's car that wasn't a, a yellow cab, people would think you're insane. If you were to invite people from around the other side of the world that you'd never met to, to stay in a spare room in your house, people would think you're insane. So not only were these technologies enabled by time and technology maturity and the intersection of things like high-speed data networks and the ever-increasing power of tiny computers that sit in our pockets and GPS being made something available to consumers with high accuracy. So timing is often everything in tech, but it really was those combinations of things that led to cultural and behavioral change. 
the simplest examples of that. But these technologies have far and wide opportunity for change. And I think the, the best is yet to be seen for blockchain. Like I'm pretty proud of the work I've, I've done in, in uh, electronic voting. The stuff happening in various other industries is impressive. But the opportunities 10 and 15 years from now are going to look very different. And nobody, I don't think, can really imagine them right now. Okay. That's great. We've covered a lot. So I don't think I've ever taken that many notes in a podcast. So thank you. <laughs> So really, really great conversation. And I really like to thank you for everything that you've shared with us. I think there'll be a lot of people listening to this who will get something out of it and really get much better understanding of what blockchain actually is and how they can, how it applies to them and maybe their future as well. Awesome. How can our listeners connect with you? That's a question we have to ask. So LinkedIn and Twitter, probably best. Twitter, I'm just Jamie Skeller, one word. And on LinkedIn, just punch Jamie Skeller into the search bar. They're the networks that I'm uh, most active on. Mm-hmm. Great. Thank you very much. All right, Robert. Jamie. Thanks a lot for being part of Unfair Advantage Project. And I'm sure we'd love to have you on again. I'm sure you've got a lot more to, that you can share with us at some stage. So thanks a lot. Thanks Please for having reach me. out if something exciting happening or you, and you want to share with us. We would be happy to hear from you. Absolutely. Will do. Thanks for listening to the Unfair Advantage Project. For more curated resources, visit us at unfairadvantageproject.com.